Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. Today on Music Life Radio, we feature an interview with Jason Everman. To put it mildly, Jason Everman has led a very interesting life. To date, Jason Everman has been a commercial fisherman, guitar hero, war veteran, bike messenger, Nepalese monk, warehouse worker, historian, and philosopher. Jason's musical career took off when he became the second guitar player for the band Nirvana. Later on, Jason joined the band Soundgarden in support of their Louder Than Live tour. He then went on to find his musical groove in the band Mindfunk. Jason eventually left the world of professional music. He joined the U.S. Army and became a Special Ops Army Ranger. Eventually... He left the military and is now currently at Columbia University studying philosophy. Please sit back and enjoy another Music Life Radio episode, this one entitled An Interesting Life. From what I understand, you were born on an island near Kodiak, Alaska, correct? I lived in a village on a smaller island off of Kodiak called uh, Kuzinki um, for the first uh, two years of my life, I guess. Yeah, I'm not sure of that island. I've been to Kodiak a few times because I was in the Coast Guard. I'm still a civilian in the Coast Guard right now. There's a big Coast Guard presence on Kodiak. Were you in a military family? No. um, My father was a fisherman up there. He moved my mom up there to this small village and lived a, a pretty austere life. I mean, austere to the point where my mom couldn't really handle it anymore. And, uh, went back to Washington State, but yeah, it was uh, my mother, my father, uh, an infant, me, and a pet ocelot in a two-room cabin with no running water up in Uzinki. My mother left with me before my second birthday, I think. So did you grow up in Washington in the Seattle area, or was it someplace else? No, I grew up um, mostly on the Olympic Peninsula, which is a big peninsula to the west of Seattle and Puget Sound. Um, grew up in a series of logging towns in a, basically all, you know, did the, the circuit all the way around the peninsula and finally uh, settled down on the Kitsap Peninsula, kind of in the middle of Puget Sound there. Ah, okay. I'm actually from Kent, Washington, if you know where that is. Oh, of course. Yeah, so I grew up there, and then uh, I went and joined the Coast Guard, went to the Coast Guard Academy, came back in 1992 and served aboard the Coast Guard Cutter Mellon, out of Seattle, and we went up to Alaska all the time doing mainly fisheries patrols, but we were hanging out in Kodiak quite a bit. It's a beautiful place. I mean, I returned up there as a, as a teenager. I worked up there for a few years, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a unique place, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. There's a club up there that a lot of our Coast Guard enlisted guys would go to and get in trouble at uh, called the Mecca Bar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big, big, big fisherman bar. Yeah, big trouble. So what were your musical influences when you were growing up? Well, I guess initially it was stuff that my mother would listen to. The Doors was a big one. Uh, she was a big Doors fan. Like the Lee Hazelwood, Nancy Sinatra stuff, you know. 
the, the just the great stuff. I mean, I, I still listen to all this stuff as well. And uh, Leonard Cohen, like I remember those being played in the house when I was really little. I got my first record in uh, 1975, I think, Kiss Alive. I think for a, a, a lot of males my age, that was probably their first record. But uh, yeah, that, that would put the rock and roll bug in me for sure. When did you start getting interested in playing music? I think I discovered like Black Sabbath and Motorhead like in probably 78, like, like fifth grade maybe. And uh, that I, I was definitely drawn to the the heavier, riffier guitar stuff. It was definitely a, a bit more riff oriented than Kiss, I guess. In eighth grade, ninth grade, maybe, I got my hands on a, a mixed cassette, probably like fifth generation. And, and on that cassette was uh, the first Zero Boys record, Vicious Circle, um, some Stooges songs, some Black Flag singles. Nevermind the Bullocks was on it, which was the first time I'd heard that record. Yeah, it was just kind of a hodgepodge of just uh, punk rock. That was like my intro. And uh, that, that was the tape that, I mean, I wore that tape out. That was, that was the tape that, you know, made the hair on my arms stand up. <laughs> and I think uh, the, the, sim- the simplicity of a lot of those songs is when the light bulb went off where I could probably play these, whereas maybe something like Sabbath was a bit more daunting from a technical standpoint. Oh, yeah. Yeah, initially I wanted to get a drum set and be, be a drummer. And I, I think in a lot of ways I'm still kind of a, a frustrated drummer. But, uh, yeah, drum set was just too, as <laughs> a bridge too far, man. It was too much money, and I, I don't think my parents would have ever t- tolerated uh, me banging on drums after school. <laughs> so, the yeah, I went to the guitar just because it was, <laughs> economically, that, that was, you know, what worked. And, uh, yeah, I just started plinking around, listening to that uh, mixtape, listening to my Kiss records, um, ACDC, stuff like that, and uh, trial and error, you know, uh, <laughs> figuring out the guitar. So when did you start getting interested in playing music with other people? Luckily, I had um, some friends in, in high school who were kind of going through this, the, the same phases of, uh, you know, getting excited about punk rock and getting instruments and, and learning how to play and um, played in just uh, not even really formal bands, but just, uh, you know, the, the cliche of getting together in the garage at a, a, a parent who would uh, tolerate it and, uh, you know, make noise basically, but kind of figure out the mechanics of rock and roll. I don't think I played in a formal uh, band until maybe 85, like my junior year of high school, with uh, with actually Chad Channing, and uh, we had this band called Stone Crow that was kind of a, uh, I, I guess in a lot of ways we we're kind of a malfunction wannabe band. Ah, okay. But uh, not near as good. But uh, it, yeah, it was fun. That was like the first band, like actually loaded up the band and, and went to Seattle and, and supported like national punk bands on tour and stuff, so that was kind of my first exposure to playing live. Here's a little Stone Crow with a track titled, I'm Not Going.
I've known Chad since sixth grade. He was, he was in my homeroom in sixth grade. Chad was exotic and cool because in sixth grade he had uh, long hair and a mustache. <laughs> nice. So it's like, oh, yeah, that guy's cool. I want to be his friend. So it sounds like your uh, friendship with Chad Channing was the reason that you were able to get into Nirvana? Um, yeah, that was definitely it. Well, I remember seeing Nirvana, and they weren't called, they were called Skid Row. I think they went through a couple different name permutations, but um, I think the first time I saw them was at the Community World Theater in Tacoma, like in 1988, maybe. And uh, the, the reason I got interested is because a friend of mine was like, oh, you need to check out Dale Crover's new band. Because at the, at the time, uh, Dale was playing drums for uh, with Kurt and Chris. And so that was kind of, oh, it's Dale's new band. But I went and saw him, saw him several times with Dale, and it was like, you know, you could tell there's something going on there. I don't know at what point Chad ended up in the band or, or what the mechanism was for that, but uh, through being friends with Chad, that's how I met Kurt and Chris. So Chad Channing joins Nirvana and is their drummer. The Nirvana hooks up with Jack and Dino to record their first album. The internet legend has it that you were the one that paid for the first album. Is that true? Well, if it's on the internet, it must be true. <laughs> no, yeah, I did. Uh, at that point, I'd been uh, working as a commercial fisherman in Alaska for several seasons and, and had, had some money in the bank and was asked to finance record and I said sure so this would have been after high school for you so is that what you were doing a commercial fisherman my first season I worked between my junior and senior year of high school and then uh, for three concurrent seasons following that so I'd work um, like spring and summer up there and then uh, in the off season for a couple years I, I think fall of 86 I went to uh, went to Europe and did the Eurail thing for about five months and uh, you know I had a, had a Interesting time there. That was my first uh, experience with uh, traveling abroad, basically. It was a good, good, interesting time. Wow, that would have been great. Can you uh, describe exactly what life was like being a commercial fisherman during that time? Uh, yeah, I worked on a, on a purse stainer. And in the, in the springtime, we basically follow the herring from uh, Cook Inlet all the way up into the Bering Sea up around Togiak and kind of finish up the season up there. And then the summertime is just fishing salmon around Kodiak Island. And, you know, some days were when the fish were running and the season was open, you know, it was long days, hard work, blah, blah, blah. But it was a good experience. You know, it's a, a high adventure. Definitely when I, you know, as a 17-year-old, that's definitely what I crave. Yeah, that sounds like it would have been a very cool experience. So you had made a lot of money doing commercial fishing during the summers, and you've got this money, and they're looking to record the album. Were you actually in the band at that point, or were you just uh, looking to help them uh, finance the album? I'm not even sure of the chronology at this point. I remember at one point hanging out with them, and Kurt broached the idea of adding a second guitar player. I think mainly just uh, to augment them live, not, not so much in the studio. And... I was like, yeah, he gave me a demo tape with Dale playing drums on it. I went home, learned the songs. And Nirvana was interesting because, well, at least at that time, they didn't really rehearse. And I think that was just a function of Kurt and Chris lived in one town, Chad lived in another, and I lived in another, and it was just kind of logistically complicated. 
the first time I played with them live was a dorm party at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, uh, this dorm called K-Dorm, which was known for its parties, I guess. Yeah, I went in there just kind of cold, played the songs. I, I talked to someone who was there maybe about a year afterwards, and he was like, uh, you know, it's kind of kind of shaky, but when it came together, you know, it came together. So that, that's the only feedback I got on it. Oh, about that specific show? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, interesting. So what was the music scene like around that time when you were playing with Nirvana? Um, at, at the time, I guess. I don't even think I was that aware of it. That I mean, I, I was aware that there were were cool bands there, but I I think you know as a, as a teenager and, and my life experience was pretty limited at that point, and I think I probably just assumed you know every town had cool bands and you know had shows and it was this group of people that you know went to each other's shows and you know it, it was definitely a a fun thing to do as a you know, teenager going into my early 20s. Here's Nirvana live at the Vogue in Seattle, June 1989, featuring Jason Everman on lead guitar. A little bit of trivia about this song. It's entitled Aero Zeppelin. It was Kurt's least favorite song to play, but Jason's favorite song. He often had to coax him into playing it. Anyway, check it out. Aero Zeppelin featuring Jason Everman. your time with Nirvana, the types of uh, gigs that you would play with them, and then uh, how you left the band? I uh, did, did it like a West Coast tour and then a U- the first U.S. tour. The, I mean, the first U.S. tour was, you know, it's a classic indie rock van tour. Load up all the gear, get in the van, play 
to, you know, spotty shows in the smaller towns and maybe bigger turnouts in the bigger towns. But, you know, I mean, there's definitely, and every band who's done this has the same stories. You know, like um, playing a show at the Mason Jar in Phoenix and then uh, afterwards, you know, you have enough money to buy gas in the next town or buy something to eat. You know, what do you do? Interesting. It was, it was, you know, it's cool to see the country um, by driving all over it. Like in high school, I'd read On the Road and, and definitely had romantic notions about uh, driving across America. How did that match up to the book On the Road? Um, no, it's nothing like a <laughs> Jack, Jack yeah. and Neil's adventure, adventure uh, for sure. But, um, oh, sure. I mean, you know, there's experiences. Who were you guys on uh, tour with? It was just us. We did some shows supporting, um, maybe a couple shows supporting Tad on the East Yeah. Coast. Okay. Yeah, I remember reading something about a Tad Nirvana tour. Yeah, but I, I mean, that tour, that U.S. tour was definitely, I mean, that, that was it for me as far as uh, playing with Nirvana. Yeah, okay. Now, I know after you left the band Nirvana, you ended up joining Soundgarden. How did that uh, all work out? Um, I mean, the whole whole thing was weird. Like, I think uh, I, I left Nirvana. Like, my I came to the point where I realized I I wasn't going to basically be allowed to participate in in songwriting or, yeah. or you know be anything more than a, a side guy, which which is fine. You know, it, you know, it wasn't my band. And I mean, in retrospect, you know, I, I'm like the kind of guy where like maybe one or two songs per record or a riff here and there, and you know, I would have been sated. Yeah. <laughs> Got back to Seattle following that U.S. tour. I, I mean, I honestly just felt kind of relieved. It was, um, it was getting stressful towards the end. I mean, I had, I think, over $20,000 in the bank, which at that time in Seattle would have lasted me two years. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like living in a, in a shared house where my rent was 250 a month, including utilities and... Uh, food wasn't an issue i ate pretty much whatever i wanted it wasn't like i was living on ramen and uh you know life was pretty uh, carefree so um i just kind of took a breather for a month or so and uh hung out i got a phone call from kim from soundgarden in uh, september maybe of was 89 and like I, I knew those guys well like soundgarden was always my favorite seattle band and I, I knew them uh, peripherally, but uh, those guys were all, I don't know, about five years older than me, so it wasn't like we were hanging out. Um, you know, I'd seen the shows, and, and I was friendly with them, but I can't say I, I, I knew them. Um, Kim gave me a call and was like, hey, he, Hero is leaving the band. Um, we're going to be auditioning bass players. Would you like to audition? And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's strange, because I didn't, I didn't even take it that seriously. I was like, eh, okay, this will be cool. I'll, I'll audition for Soundgarden, but, I, you know, I'm not going to get the gig. Um, I had a, I already had a, a bootleg, like, advance tape of uh, Louder Than Love that I'd picked up in New York uh, on the Nirvana tour. And so I was familiar with the new songs, um, did not have a bass. I borrowed a bass from a friend of mine. Um, I sat in my room and learned the song. Um, went to an audition maybe a week or so later. You know, I was super nervous. Played a couple songs with them. And, like, eh, nothing much was really 
upset, and uh, I went home, and I, you know, figured, okay, that's that's that, you know, yeah. <laughs> that, that that was like my my, uh, my jamming with Soundgarden experience. But um, because I, I knew just through talking to other people that, that, that I mean, they were auditioning a lot of people, like like I mean, amazing bass players, you know, uh, some coming in from Europe. Even I mean, it was like this big deal. So I was like, oh, no way am I going to get it. Yeah. <laughs> Like a week or so later, I got a call from Kim, and they, they wanted to do a second audition. And I was like, mm, yeah, okay. Played with them again, and it seemed kind of the same to me. Uh, you know, I can't be objective about my performance. I think I did okay. This process went on for maybe a month. Oh, wow. Where they were, like, auditioning different bass players, and I, I got the two auditions. And then at one point... Kim called me up and it's like, hey, what are you, what are you doing tonight? You know, do you want to hang out? And I was like, uh, yeah, sure. So went out with uh, all three of them with uh, Kim, Matt, and Chris. You know, it's kind of it's kind of weird. We're just kind of driving around. You know, in my mind, I was like, okay, this is the part where they're like, uh, you know, we thought you did a good job, but you know, we picked uh, somebody else. <laughs> so I was, just, you know, I was totally prepared for it. It's fine. So yeah, it turned into this kind of random evening of like uh, going to different places and, and walking around and hanging out. And at one point, we ended up at the cemetery on Capitol Hill where Bruce Lee is buried. But at this point, it's maybe ten o'clock at night. Like the, the cemetery's closed, so we're we're climbing over the chain link fence to get into the cemetery. And like in mid climb, I think Matt and Chris are already on the other side. Uh, Kim turns to me and like almost casually says, you know, hey, do you want to be in the band? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, sure. And, uh, and that was that. And then it was, you know, it was, it was full speed ahead for, you know, the next almost year from that point on. Did you get along with those guys really well? Do you think that's why maybe you got the gig? You know, I never asked them why I got it. I think I was just psyched that I got it. Um, getting get along with the guys. I mean, I, I got along with Kim, uh, great. Uh, and Matt really well. Uh, there was some friction with me and Chris, which uh, you know ultimately led to me getting fired. Ah, uh, okay. You know that was that. So the tour that you were on with them was just like a whirlwind tour. You were uh, supporting the Louder and Love album. Yeah, yeah. It was um like when I look back on it now, it it, it was such a at the time it seemed like kind of um, like a natural pace. But I look back now and it seemed like the timeline was was really compressed from where I was working in Alaska and then kind of traveling around Europe in the off season to playing in a band that was playing locally like a couple times a month, which was like a huge deal to me. It was like, I thought, wow, this is it. We're playing the Vogue, you know? Yeah. <laughs> to, uh, you know, the band tour, to this accelerated, you know, the, the, the world of a professional rock and roll musician where, you know, Soundgarden had the support of a major label, buses, hotels, per diem, salary, um, all that stuff, which was like a, a big change. This is Soundgarden, Beyond the Wheel, recorded live at the Whiskey in December 1989. Beyond the road, Oh, 
not not just with Soundgarden, but later on with Mindfunk as well. Like especially after doing several U.S. tours, it gets to the point where you, you have friends across the country touring Europe. I did uh, quite a bit. I would just use that opportunity to like go to museums. You know, I, I think I've been to every museum in Europe. Did a lot of that on my own traveling, but I did a lot of that. You know, on, on rock and roll's dime. And even on tour with Soundgarden in the bus, I would sit up front with the driver in the bus and, and just <laughs> watch the American landscape like all day and, and loved it. Yeah, that's really cool. So there was some friction between you and Chris, and eventually that is what resulted in them asking you to leave the band. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, we got, we got back from a European tour, and yeah, I was, just, I was fired, you know, and uh, that was that. How did you take that? Uh, at the time, yeah, it was it was it was a it was a rough you know it was one of the rough roughest times of my life probably like like an, an emotional trauma I guess um, I guess what it came down to was uh you know you know I was still a pretty young man I think it's it's twenty one or so oh sure yeah and, it, and at that point I think I kind of let you know be, being a rock and roll guy being a, a rock musician become my identity when that identity was pulled out from under me um it, it definitely it threw me for a loop for, for a little bit luckily my, my girlfriend at the time was, was very very supportive and uh <laughs> helped me uh helped me through it i, I went up to uh vancouver canada and uh, stayed with some friends of mine up there to kind of uh, you know feel sorry for myself and lick my wounds for a while and uh, that definitely helped out. I don't know, about a, a week of kind of serious, you know, sulking and feeling sorry for myself and, and all that stuff. I kind of just stood up, dusted myself off and said, oh, okay, you know, what now? And that's when I started kind of formulating my plan. What was next for you at that point? It, you know, at that point, I, I really wasn't too interested in, in, like, playing music or trying to start a band. I definitely felt like I was stagnating in, in Seattle. Um, basically, I needed to put myself in a situation that would uh, force me to evolve personally and, and in every other way. And what I had decided to do, like I'd made um, a lot of good friends in New York playing there with a, a couple different bands over the you know, course of the past year or so. And I, I liked the city. Gr- growing up in the, in the woods of the Olympic Peninsula, New York was definitely pretty much polar opposite. And I was like, you know what? So I got 20 grand in the bank. Yeah, I'm going to move to New York, and that's what I did. Um, I got a job in a warehouse, uh, got an apartment in Alphabet City in the East Village, and uh, kind of uh, adapted to New York life. Oh, very cool. Yeah, New York City, man, there's no place like it, that's for sure. So uh, is this where you ended up hooking up with the old lady drivers, that band? Can you talk about that? I met Jim Plotkin from uh, Old Lady Drivers through a, a mutual friend, and he he was basically interested in a, a bass player to play live with him, and I was good with that. He played me the music. It's like I've never had that much exposure, really, to um, electronic music before, and I actually learned quite a bit from Jimmy. Like I knew I knew nothing about programming drum drum machines or, or sequences or, or anything like that. So that was a big education through. Jimmy, I met John Zorn, which was pretty amazing. Uh, I remember Jimmy taking me to meet him initially at, at his apartment in Alphabet City. And uh, to, to this day, I'll always remember that apartment because the entire thing was shelves of vinyl records from floor to ceiling. It was like a maze. Wow. I don't, I don't know how many thousands were in there. 
and they, they were meticulously organized by, by like genre and subgenre. And John Zorn just had this knowledge, this intimate knowledge of every record in there. It, it, I mean, truly an amazing man. Yeah, just meeting John Zorn was, you know, a really cool experience. But yeah, with Jimmy, it, it kind of got me back, like playing, and all, and all I ever did with with OLD was play live. You know, playing uh, CBGBs and the Palladium and these places that don't even exist anymore. Yeah, that, that are gone. Yeah, CBGBs. I think when they got shut down, they ended up moving to uh, Las Vegas, if I recall. God, did they have no idea? Yeah, I think there was a plan. I'm not really sure if they actually did move move it though i know hilly died eh, a few years ago so he wouldn't have had any involvement with it yeah they probably licensed the name or something and, and laughing all the way to the bank i'm sure yeah exactly so you spent some time in mindfunk can you talk about that yeah like i i was still working in the warehouse and a pretty you know pretty happy with my life you know it's like uh you know i, I, I didn't see myself as, as a career uh warehouse worker but it, it was a good time to just kind of have a, a mindless job and kind of um figure stuff out a bit but i was a, approached by pat dubar from mindfunk uh regarding being their new guitar player i didn't know pat personally but i knew of him from uh the, the punk rock days and uh you know i, I had uniform choice seven inches and of course knew who he was I'd never heard the band before. They had one CD out already, listened to it, and it, was, it wasn't all the way in my cup of tea. I, I made it clear with Pat. I was like, well, okay, if I, if I do this, I, I need to be involved in, in the, the writing process. And he was like, oh, definitely. And so I was like, uh, okay. You know, I rogered up to it. And uh, a month or so later, uh, the band rented a house in rural New Jersey in uh, Monmouth County, which is like another switch from like a... You know, li- living in Manhattan for you know almost two years in Alphabet City, which at the time was not the greatest neighborhood. It's, it's I went there recently to a motorcycle shop, and it's the whole neighborhood's been gentrified. I didn't even recognize it. Oh wow! But um, got a house in rural New Jersey out in the woods. Got the U-Haul truck, loaded up all the equipment, and uh, set up the rehearsal room and started writing. You know, we had the house for a year. Again, it was another nice uh, break being out in rural Jersey, um, away from the city. I um, started writing um, almost, like three months into it, almost got kicked out of Montauk. Smoothed that out. What happened? I'm sure it's this way with, with most bands. There's usually um, two or more factions within the band. In a, like being in a rock band, or any band I imagine, and I've never been married, but I've, I've always made this analogy where it's like, you know, it's like being married to you know, four other people, three other people, or whatever. And, and, and it's like you gotta you gotta manage kind of this three way marriage, uh, creative marriage, which makes it you know kind of compounds the difficulties. And uh, yeah, there was a, there was a rough spot, but uh, rather than getting divorced, we, we uh, smoothed things out. We got uh, an offer to play the Russ Gilda Festival in Denmark that spring. Uh, flew out to Denmark, spent a week there, maybe ten days, you know, kind of a, a little vacation basically. Played the main stage at Russ Gilda like right before Megadeth. And, uh, you know, to this day, I mean, biggest show I ever played in my life. Probably the biggest show I'll ever play. Um, I, I doubt I'll ever have an opportunity to play in front of that many people again. Yeah, came back from, from Denmark. The, at the Ross Gilda Festival, we, we played at least all the new songs that we had written up to that point, which, which was a pretty good-sized chunk of the album. But that, that was like the, the debut, you know, in front of 65,000 people. And, and uh, the response was pretty positive with the, with the press and with uh, the fans. So, you know, it's a 
you know, come home with a bit of a smile on your face. After expenses were paid, uh, we paid each other a thousand dollars from what was left, and then I took my thousand dollars, <laughs> bought a mountain bike. That mountain bike I had for for years. I, I used it uh, when I worked with the bike messenger in Manhattan, like uh, several years later, and I uh, had that bike. I, I gave it to a friend of mine who was deploying to Iraq for the second time uh, as a, a company commander in the striker brigade. And uh, he wanted a bike to take over there to ride around the base. And uh, so I gave him the mountain bike. And he, in turn, uh, gave it to one of his interpreters over there. So as far as I know, it's uh, there's an Iraqi interpreter riding my, my mountain <laughs> bike uh, outside of Mosul somewhere, you know? Yeah, that's funny. Came back from Denmark, finished writing the album. We had a studio lined up. And uh, we were going to record at Bearsville up in Woodstock, New York. And uh, it, a beautiful spot, it's like on this old farm, like the rehearsal space. It's, it's literally like an old Dutch barn. It's like a, amazing. Moved out of the house, loaded up all the gear, uh, drove up to Woodstock, had my cat with me. Almost everyone had their own little cottage on the property. Uh, me and Pat shared one. And uh, I remember me and Sean, the drummer, were setting up the gear in, in the barn to start like a pre-production stuff. And uh, someone came down and was like, oh, yeah, Epic Records called, and you guys have just been dropped. Oh, no. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but that's exactly what happened. So we're like, wow, this is it, you know? What now? You know, that feeling again, what now? Um, So uh, the the owner of the studio was really cool, and he he was in a tight spot, too, because we had the whole place for, I think, two months. Was it already paid for? Well, that, that's the thing. It's like I think theoretically he could have totally kept our money, but he, he was he was really cool. He he, I'm sure I'm sure he kept some of the money just to cover his the expenses that he needed to cover. Yeah, sure. And I, I think he had no problem like rebooking that time because no. I know band, bands were stacked up like like waiting to get in there. And he he let us stay there for about a week as management kind of sorted out what we were going to do. You know. Um, yeah. <sighs> And that was just a, a bizarre week, man. Uh, I remember just <laughs> sitting, uh, watched a lot of cable TV in this cottage in upstate New York, hung out with my cat, and uh, it, yeah, it was, it was kind of a, a depressing time, you know, that that uncertainty and like, okay, you know, I guess I could probably get my warehouse job back, you know, that kind of deal. We worked out uh, a deal to, to record with Megaforce, which was uh, John Zazula, our manager, obviously, it was his label. We still had our producer, which was Terry Date. Uh, Terry was still on board, uh, still excited about the project. And Terry actually helped us uh, get into Bad Animals Studio in uh, Seattle, which is which is Hart's studio. There's two rooms. Like, there's the old analog room. Well, this is back then. I don't know what there is now. There's the old an- analog room, which we used, and then there's a new uh, digital studio. But, yeah, I went, um, packed up all the gear, took it to the airport, and uh, we were in Seattle. Wow. Yeah, recorded. We lived downtown in this kind of weird transient hotel there. It's called Marvin Gardens. That, that was an interesting three months, I think, we were there. Like, I think it's October, November, December. But yeah, recorded the record. A great experience recording. It was cool. I mean, for me personally, like, like that Mind Funk record is like my musical endeavor that I'm, I'm most proud of, I guess. In that, you know, I think I, I think I still had something to prove. I mean, I mean to know what, nobody but myself, but I, I, I had to prove that I could I could write a, a decent rock and roll song, I guess. Yeah. 
and that was what I wanted to do. And I think on, on drop, I was able to do that. Let's listen to a little mind funk right now. This is a song called Wisteria on the Dropped album. the album maybe once a year you know I'll break it out throw it on and uh, I mean there's a couple clunkers on there that, that I'm not too into but for the most part I'm you know I'm proud of that record really proud of it how did your relationship with the band Mind Funk end the band was kind of fractured like geographically like uh, Sean Pat and myself that January moved to San Francisco for no re- reason other than you know let's Move somewhere new. I loaded up the U-Haul in our, our uh, Chevy Suburban, <laughs> and I, I drove coast to coast, you know, drove all our stuff cross country. Met Sean and Pat out there. Pat was tasked with uh, securing an apartment, which he did. He got a, a great place in the Mission District. Yeah, the whole uh, time in San Francisco, it was kind of a dark period, um, at least for me. There, there was definitely, um, that was definitely probably the, the heaviest period of like a like drug use in my life and uh not that i I wouldn't advocate it on a recreational basis but it it, it was getting a little bit a bit much i think and uh i started thinking about okay basically thinking about my next move it's like yeah i don't i don't see this working out much longer at least for me um and i guess that goes or leads into uh going into the military which is something i'd always wanted to do and at that point, I was probably 25. I was like, I was still young, but 
it, you know, I was basically at a decision point. It's like, okay, you know, if, if I'm going to do this military thing, I'm, I'm going to have to do it now or I won't be able to do it. Yeah, you missed the age cutoff date. It, it goes back to like a, that, that last tour, or last couple tours. It's a European tour, which is actually uh, great. Played, played the Dynamo Festival, played right before Merciful Fate, which was amazing. You know? Oh, that's cool. I, I'm, I'm geeking, you know, my, my metal geek side is coming out a bit. Feel free. I'm a big metal geek at heart, uh, too. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I wear it proudly. But, uh, yeah, it was, um, like, Merciful Fate, like, that goes back to, like, uh, like the, being a teenager and being uh, a fan of Malfunction and stuff. And I remember Kevin Wood, the guitar player from Malfunction, and he, he was a couple years older than me, or is a couple years older than me. And uh, I, I kind of looked up to him as a musician and, and as kind of like a, a rock and roll figure or whatever, you know, when I was, like, 17 years old. And, you know, we, we'd all discovered, like, Metallica and Slayer, and, and, you know, we're definitely on board with that stuff. And Kevin pulled me aside, like, at a, a rehearsal or something, and he's like, you've gone through the Metallica phase. You're in the Slayer phase. You're ready for the fate phase. <laughs> the fate phase. And, and he gave me this uh, cassette with a bunch of Merciful Fate stuff on it, um, including, like, a, a, a lot in Copenhagen like 1982 bootleg, which I still have, which is amazing. But it, it took me a while to get it at first, to, to get Merciful Fate and, like, King Diamond and all that. And I was kind of like, you know, I'm not sure I'm digging this. But then, like, the, it kind of clicked, you know. It, t- it took several listens. And then the, the music stuff, you know, what was going on technically uh, with the guitars and, and the amazing rhythm section, you know, I got it. But long story short, or long story long, Open for Fate at Dynamo, which is like one of the biggest, you know, metal festivals in Europe, and uh, I got to meet those guys and stuff, which was a little fan geekdom moment right there. But uh, yeah, the European tour went well. Played a bunch of a bunch of outdoor festivals in Europe. Um, we, we I think definitely enjoyed more popularity in, in Europe than we did in the States for whatever reason. Came back from the European tour back to the barrier and it's just like you know depressing like I wasn't into it and that's when I was like you know what I'm going to start researching this military thing and I actually went to uh, uh, the recruiter in San Francisco and and took the ASVAB and scored well on the ASVAB and I went to a Navy recruiter because I, I was looking into uh, being a SEAL and uh, of course with the ASVAB score that I had these, these Navy recruiters were like pushing me into like technical fields and I was like no I don't I don't really want to do that, you know. And basically, they were like, "I'm like, can you promise me, like, like if I, if I, you know, raise my right hand and sign on the dotted line, I'll I'll be on the track to like at least you know go to the selection process uh, for the teams." And he's like, "No, we can't do that." And I was like, "Okay, see ya." And that that's when I went to the army, and uh, they're like, "Yeah, we we can get you on a on a basically on a special operations track." Going back to Mindfunk, so yeah, so I basically had made the decision. It's like I'm, I'm going to complete my touring obligations and go in the military. Um, I started I started going to the Y, I was swimming, I was running, I was biking, I was getting in shape. Did a, a U.S. tour that that fall and winter, which was uh, it, you know it was, it was an okay tour, but it's definitely being on stage. I just wasn't deriving any kind of personal joy from it. I, I wasn't. I, I, I felt fake up there. I'm not into this. I'm sure it's translating to the people who paid money to see us, but I'm not into it. You know, this is, 
I think this is pretty much run its course. So, uh, yeah, I completed my touring obligations um, with Mindfunk, and a month later I was in basic training down in Fort Benning, Georgia. Now, what exactly got you interested in joining the military? I guess it goes back to a concept that I'm still, you know, refining, kind of leading an, an interesting life. And what I mean by an interesting life is it's just a life that's interesting to me, not necessarily to anybody else. You know, I'd already poured about four years into, like, uh, being a rock and roll musician. And, you know, I didn't have it in me anymore. I, I needed to put myself in a, in a situation that kind of forced me to evolve. And uh, the military was definitely the next step on that, that ladder. So you were influenced by people in your family. You had mentioned to me offline uh, earlier that your grandpa was a World War II Coast Guard vet. Did he have any influence? Yeah, he did. Um, my, my other grandfather, probably more so, uh, and, and I say more so not to diminish uh, anything that my father's father did, but I, I, I didn't even know my father's father until I was an adult. So, growing up, I had a good relationship with my mother's father, who was a, a World War II veteran. He, he was a tank commander, 13th Armored Division. But he, I mean, man, he on, on D-Day, he, he was a E-4 corporal, like tank gunner. Wow. In, in a Sherman tank. On VE Day, he was a company commander. Wow. <laughs> That's probably less a testament to... Uh, a, a great man or a great warrior he was and more that you know he just survived basically he's just <laughs> attrition yeah but you know I'm, I'm sure he was a fine company commander as well and uh you know he would, he would show me his pictures when i was like a kid and tell me the stories and and uh that, that was definitely a huge influence So you joined the Army one month after you had completed your touring obligations with Mindfunk. Where did you do your basic training at? Uh, I did basic training, airborne school, and uh, selection for a Ranger Regiment all down at Fort Benning. And it was all concurrent, and basically a little over four months straight through. And if anyone who's been to the Southeast, you know, it's hot, it's humid, it was, the, you know... It, was, uh, it wasn't fun, but at the same time, you know, I didn't do it because I thought it would be fun. It was weird. Like, every every boot camp cliche from every movie that you can think of, you know, you, you experience in basic training. It, it, was just, it was almost kind of surreal thing, you know? Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I went to the Coast Guard Academy, and the whole first year you're there, you're referred to as a swab. And the people that are training you that are basically being your drill instructors have watched all of those movies, and I'm pretty sure that's where they got their idea of how to be that drill instructor. So it is pretty surreal. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think uh, it, it, it kind of turns into this recursive, you know, uh, life imitating art, imitating life kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I went through, uh, you know, basic training, then uh, infantry school, then airborne school, and then uh, went to selection for... Ranger Regiment got selected and uh, ended up going to uh, 
Italian, which was, you know, awesome experience. What were some of the more memorable experiences that you had? Yeah, not so much, I guess, particular experiences, but more, uh, I mean, I guess learning the, the, the formal training of, of, you know, becoming a warrior, I guess, which was what I was looking for. And regimen is definitely, you know, that, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road, in, uh, in the Army at least. And, uh, you know, it's hard. Like, be, being a private in a, in a Ranger regiment, especially, you know, I was, a, I was 25 years old, so I was, I was older than a lot of the people. Yeah, there. exactly. <laughs> well, a lot of the, the junior enlisted at least. Yeah. Um, which, which in a way may, might have helped me, you know, because I, you know, I just kind of rolled with stuff. But um, um, that, that, that camaraderie, you know, and it's like, you know, it's a cliche, but it, it's true, you know, like, a, a, you know, the hazing and the bullshit and uh, all the stuff you have to put up with. It's like, you know, you, you, earn, you earn your place there. When, when it's all said and done, you know, you're standing amongst equals and, it's like, I mean, one thing about, I guess, the, the music industry that bothered me was people on the, on the business side of uh, the band, you know, who were, like, intimately involved in, in <laughs> you know, my, my life and in, in, in de- decisions regarding uh, me and uh, the way my life was going to go. And there was a lot of people that, I, you know, I didn't like, you know, much less respect and that's where i kind of took a step back and go oh you know that's really not right <laughs> um, in the in the military at least in, in the in the special operations community it's like sure there's probably plenty of guys that you don't necessarily like and i'm sure there's plenty of guys that don't like me but you, you respect each other and, and that that's what makes everything work you know because you know everybody there went through exactly the same thing you did to get there and I'm sure you've had the same experience uh, in in the Coast Guard. I mean, that's you know that that's fundamental military uh, method right there, as far as like building a cohesive unit. So it's effective. Well, you're all operating on the same basic principles and goals. I would think um, it's got to be a lot different motivation than you know what would fuel the music industry, for example. Like I mean, human mo- motivation is a weird thing anyway, because it's. It, it, it's all ultimately self-serving, and I don't mean that in a, a pejorative way, because, you know, everyone's self-serving. That's, that's, that's normal. At the end of the day, like, the self, like, the only instances where I've seen, like, what you could consider, like, true, like, non-reciprocal altruism has been, you know, in combat. I think that's just where kind of this primal drive kind of overrides all, you know, reasoning. This has happened in... in you know, both theaters, Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, the guy jumping on the grenade to save his buddies. You, you, you don't deliberate whether to do that or not. You just do it. And, uh, you know, there's something powerful about that, you know? Well, especially for the people that witness that as well. I mean, that's like, that's, uh, that's I think, love. So you served in Iraq and Afghanistan. How long were you in the military for? Uh, I had a break in service. I was in I was in regiment for about three years, a little over three years, and uh, I, I got out. It's like I, I kind of felt like okay, this this part of my life I fulfilled it. I always had this goal to uh, go to the, and trek around the Himalayas, and so I was like, okay, I got I got a block of time. I just got to make some money, and then I'll, I'll go do it. 
And so that's what I did. Worked with the bike messenger in Manhattan. Um, saved up my money. Flew to Kathmandu and then walked into the mountains for several months. Wow, that sounds like fun. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good experience. I spent uh, several weeks in a, a, a monastery called Kutin Choling um, in the Everest region. I was invited by the, the reincarnation of that monastery to kind of hang out for a bit. And I mean, there was a couple of issues as far as like language probably being the biggest one where, you know, I, I don't speak or read Tibetan, which is uh, the, the language of Mahayana, you know, Tibetan Buddhism. But I, I did, uh, I had a couple 10-day, you know, Vipassana meditation courses under my belt. So I knew how to sit in a meditation room and, and think. And I knew how to uh, sweep floors and chop firewood and, you know, the, the more mundane logistical uh, parts about uh, living in a Buddhist monastery. So, yeah, I basically spent a lot of time in the meditation, uh, the main room, sitting there thinking about stuff. Uh, when I wasn't thinking, I was doing chores, you know. It's, uh, it's always like a private, you know. Yep, helping out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Like, the, the monastery very much has a very uh, military-like structure. You know, you got you got all the, the young uh, llamas who are basically like your junior enlisted who do all the shit work, which was where I was. You, you got your uh, senior NCOs who kind of handle all the middle management stuff. And then you got uh, your, your officers, like, uh, the, you know, the reincarnation is basically your battalion commander, and he has a staff. And then uh, you, you got a, a logistical section that handles things like cooking and stuff like that. And yeah, it's it, it was very military in its structure, which in a way made it not so foreign to me. Sure. What did you take away from your time at the monastery? I guess probably like a lot of, at least Westerners, I think I approached it with maybe some preconceived ideas of, okay, I'm going to sit in this, you know, really exotic place on a mountaintop and 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 figure out the meaning of life and you know of course I didn't but I you know I did figure out a couple of I think at least for me personally you know at the end of the day it's like you know all, all I'm trying to do is figure out my own shit which I think is what everyone's trying to do meditating in a, in a Buddhist monastery in the Himalayas you know it, it sounds sexy it, it breathes well <laughs> but at, at the end of the day the conclusion I came to, I could have just as easily and probably more easily come to, you know, sitting in my backyard in Washington, watching my cats chase dragonflies, you know, which is figuring your own shit out. You, you don't you don't need to be in a monastery in the Himalayas. Like the geography has absolutely nothing to do with it. it, it it's, it's all about your, your own interiority, and, and that's key. So by... Uh, sitting in a monastery on a mountaintop, I arrived at that conclusion. I guess in a way it kind of served its purpose. But yeah, it's kind of a uh, the long route, I guess. But it, it was it was a great experience, and I, I you know I, I wouldn't have traded it or wouldn't trade it for anything you know in the world. So by spending time at the monastery, it just kind of got your mind focused on uh, what your issues were. Perhaps is that how that worked? Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I still wonder. You know, I'm not even sure if I, I meditate correctly. Um, I probably don't because I, I definitely don't uh, sit there and and clear my mind and, and think about my breathing. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about you know everything. Uh, you know, my, my mind's racing and I, you know and I'm I'm just thinking about stuff. 
Yeah. And uh, I, I'm not sure if that's necessarily the point of meditation, but that, that's when I meditate, that's what I do. It works for me, I guess. So after that trip, you went back to New York City. Uh, how did you get back into the military? How did you re-up and get back in? Um, well, I, I didn't even stay in New York. I came back uh, from Nepal and India, drove across the country back to Washington State, and I entered kind of a, another kind of dark period. I was like definitely um, in a kind of a weird culture shock, like coming back from just being in, in the, the mountains, which I still love the mountains. You know, I, I, I live close to the mountains in Washington now. Yeah, so it was a weird time. I came back. I was in a, a relationship that wasn't working. Um, I was unemployed and slowly kind of found my way going back in the military. And it's something that I always kind of felt that was unfinished business, you know, in a lot of ways. You know, my, my, my three plus years in regiment, you know, wasn't the end of the story. That there's another paragraph waiting to be written. Um... Had you been in combat during that first three years at all? Yeah, I'd done a couple real world deployments, but like I said, it was it was Clinton era. Yeah, it wasn't you know I miss Somalia, which was, in a lot of ways probably a good thing. Uh, all all my cadre during selection were all Somalia vets, which, which had just been the year before, and uh, you know there were there were some hardcore fucking killers, man. There 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 were warriors, you know, through and through, and uh, that that made an impression on me. Uh, went back in the army, uh, went to selection for special forces, got selected, uh, spent like the next year and a half uh, in the what's called the Q course. It's like the training, the training course for uh, to become a special forces soldier. I was almost done uh, with the Q course when 9/11 happened, and uh, I mean at that point it's like I knew, <laughs> you know, things are going to be different. Yeah, that's true. I was actually just getting out of the service at that point from active duty. Uh, I was on terminal leave that month right before uh, 9-11 happened. So you were finishing up your Q course, uh, and then what happened? I was at Fort Bragg at the time. It went from, I mean, overnight, from this kind of uh, peacetime garrison training base to war mode, like overnight. Yeah, I started uh, deployed to Iraq. Uh, for the invasion, and then did su- subsequent deployments to Afghanistan after that. And uh, prior to Iraq, did a deployment to Southeast Asia in support of uh, post-9-11 operations over there. Any significant stories from that time period? Yeah, I'm not particularly comfortable at telling war stories. Um, oh, sure. Whatever you're comfortable sharing is fine. 
Um, I mean, I guess being uh, in combat is uh, de- definitely a defining moment in, in my life. It's, um, I mean, combat's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a fucking weird thing, and uh, it's a weird thing to be involved in. But um, like a lot of the cliches about it, I think ring true. Like uh, you know, being simultaneously uh, terrifying and, and exhilarating. Like like being in a gunfight is. Uh, it's a, it's a scary fucking thing, and uh, you know there, there's there's nothing cool or, or sexy about being in a gunfight, and the the best part is when it's over. <laughs> but yeah, that being said, to actually close with and destroy the enemy is is an exhilarating thing, and it, it's 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 primal, and um, I don't totally understand it. To, you know, to be honest, I think one of the times I felt most essentially human has, has been in combat. And when I say essentially human, I mean, you know, I'm talking about hominids on the savanna, you know, that kind of... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ...being an, an essential human. And uh, it, it's, it's a scary thing, but it's an exhilarating thing. And, and I, I, un, I understand it now, you know, which was kind of the point. Did you have a uh, real fascination with history growing up? I mean, is that, is that part of the draw as well? Oh, absolutely! Like like seeing the zit it in real life. Wow, that's, that's fucking amazing. Uh, um, in uh, outside of Kandahar in Afghanistan, uh, just to the west of the city, is a uh, you can you can see it pretty well from satellite imagery. When you're actually on the ground, it doesn't look like anything, but you can see the walls of the uh, the original uh, Alexandria and Eratosia. Oh wow! One of the Alexandrias that obviously. Uh, Alexander Macedon established on on his push east through Persia, mm-hmm. like standing within the walls of you know Alexandria and Eratosia, and, and there's still pottery shards and you, know, you can find stuff you know or even midden piles with like bones and stuff in it. This is history, man, and it's like and, and by continuation, I'm I'm a participant, you know, which is a, a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, I'm fascinated, especially that part of the world, I'm fascinated with the history. Um, did uh, some deployments up in Nuristan, which is up in the uh, northeast part of the country, in uh, this real mountainous region. There's an interesting uh, group of people that live up there, the, the, the Nuristanis. And I guess they're analogous to, like, the Basque people in Spain, where, uh, you know, the Basque people speak... Uh, like a pre-Indo-European language, and that they they were basically protected by geography by the mountains, where they they weren't absorbed by the expansion of uh, Indo-European-speaking people. You know, whatever seven thousand years ago, whenever the expansion occurred. But the, this group of people, the, the, the Nuristanis, are kind of part of or descended from that original Indo-European expansion. You know, like thousands of years ago from around the, the RLC. And, uh, you know, those people domesticated the horse and invented the wheel, uh, became mobile, and then basically uh, took over Eurasia, at least culturally and linguistically. But it's interesting because you, you go up there and it's just full of uh, people with, like, blonde hair, red hair, and blue eyes. Oh, wow. And uh, they've been genetically, you know, the same... The same Geographic barrier that kind of kind of protected the Basque people in Spain had, had protected the Nuristanis as well. They're in the mountains there, and they actually practiced the old uh, Indo-European religion up until a little over a hundred years ago. That's when they were finally uh, forcibly converted to Islam. 
Oh wow! So it's just a, I mean, li- living history. You know, you're you're like amongst these people that you know st- still uh, speak the old Indo-European language, or, or at least in a, a you know an evolution of that, that the Nurstani and all, all the different dialects and stuff. I'm looking at people who could easily be my brother. You know, yeah. And I, I would always joke with them that I, I was North Stanley, you know, that I was from, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I'm from, I'm from Camdash, you know, and they go, oh yeah, of course you are. So yeah, it's <laughs> kind of fun. Uh, but yeah, love history, man. Love, love it. Um, can't get enough. In fact, uh, like post-grad education, uh, I'm looking at a, a master's in military history degree. Oh, that would seem appropriate. So I also know that you were inspired by the autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini. Yeah, Cellini. Oh, Cellini. Is that how you pronounce it? Okay. Yeah. All right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I guess my, my exposure to it, my initial exposure was like a 10th grade social studies class. Okay. Uh, obviously studying the, the Renaissance. And the, the teacher used that book as basically an example of a, a good kind of reference uh, for that period because it, it was, you know, it's a... It's a Autobiography of a guy who who, who lived it, who who knew, you know, a lot of the players in, in Italy and France back in that time. So I guess I was intrigued. I was intrigued that he was a you know a polymath where he he was a, an accomplished soldier and he was a, an accomplished artist. But I, I didn't know how accomplished an artist he was. I remember seeing his the statue he did of Perseus with Medusa's head in Florence. Uh huh. And it, it, it is a truly, like, a, amazing piece of art. And, like, you know, this guy was, like, it's almost like he just kind of dabbled in it. But he was, like, so good at it. Yeah. Like, wow. You know? And, uh, you know, the, his autobiography, it's, it, is, it is a great read and a great window into that time. And, it, it, you know, it is kind of self-aggrandizing. And, and I'm sure a lot of it is exaggerated. But it's still, you know, still, bottom line, he was an interesting guy. And, and he, he, he lived a full life. And that, that's what... uh compelled me about this autobiography. So did that help to um, define this artist-warrior philosopher path that you're kind of going down? I don't think it was an active, uh, like, working template. Yeah, okay. And, and, and I'm still kind of adjusting as I go, basically. Like I said, I guess my, my intent has just been to, to just live a, a full life, you know, and, uh, and try to experience as much as you can you know, grab life by the neck and, and, and choke the living dog shit out of it, you know? <laughs> get every drop, you know, hopefully of joy that you can out of it because at the end of the day, that's, you know, that's all, you, that's all you're going to get. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's like, I was talking with my brother uh, at my grandfather's funeral the other week. He was a passionate, passionate uh, man regarding uh, boats and the sea and anything nautical. And he worked his entire life there on the Columbia River between Washington and Oregon um, on tugboats, aside from his stint in the Coast Guard during World War II, where he, you know, defended that part of our coastline just because he had such an intimate knowledge of it. Mm-hmm. He was so, and I envy him in a lot of ways, where he was, he was totally content. Like, he, he lived his entire life doing what he loved. You know, I was talking to my brother, and it's like, you, you can't ask for anything more than that if you're from this world, you know? That's it. Yeah, enjoy it. Live life to its fullest. That's very good. I mean, it's going to be different for everybody, but, you know, finding finding that thing or things that, that brings you joy and, and, you know, living that life.
want to get back to the military part of your life. Did music have any role in your military life? Uh, when you were checking out these other countries, did you check out some of the local music? Um, did you play music while you were in the military? Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, I mean, I definitely, <laughs> on my, I mean, to this day, I still have it on my, on my iPod. I have my go-to-war playlist, Yeah, which was uh, basically a playlist of motivational songs, essentially. Yeah, I always uh, have a, and, it, and it's not just the, the military or, or being in theater or, or, or whatever, but I always kind of have that, uh, you know, soundtrack, if not like literally playing, like in the room or, or on the headphones or whatever, going on in my head, you know? What interests me and what I find compelling is the areas of overlap between maybe two seemingly disparate things. Like, if you look at, a, like, Nietzsche's model of the the Apollonian and the Dionysian, you know, you got the, the Apollonian, which represents reason, and the, the Dionysian, you know, represents passion or emotion. That conflict between reason and emotion, which I think you could safely say are the two uh, driving factors in, in any human being, is, is where interesting things occur. With music, you can look at music as being the imposition of, of reason, reason being like, a, you know, you have uh, scales and, and timber and meter, and, and you have the, these formal aspects of music that you impose on, or maybe imposition is too strong a term, but um, you, you kind of canalize uh, passion or emotion or feelings into this... Uh, formal structure of, of music, you know, in, in my case, you know, rock and roll, which is, I guess, my, my medium of choice um, musically. Well said. That's very well put. That's where it's interesting, that overlap of reason and passion. I think it's safe to say you can apply that to any, any artistic endeavor, you know, the visual arts, um, writing, you know, anything. But even in life, you know, like uh, the overlap, and I, I guess I kind of tangentially touched on that idea like as far as like history being overseas and there's that overlap of you know where I'm I'm participating in history but I'm actually in areas that are already you know rich 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 in, in history ancient history and, and there, there's that overlap of me and, and my stupid little trip and the rest of the world but that intersection you know that that's that's where the magic happens you know like, I was just, I went through this phase where I was obsessed with uh, the Spanish Civil War and uh, the Chaco War in South America, where I, I read every single book I could get my hands on regarding those two conflicts, because they essentially happened back-to-back, and there, there were a couple of the big interbellum wars between World War One and, and World War II. I actually went to the Forsman Library in Manhattan a couple weeks ago to read the autobiography of this guy named Frank Tinker, who was the only American ace of the Spanish Civil War. And uh, he was friends with Hemingway and uh, you know, all, all these kind of interesting intersections of things that I'm interested in. The book is super rare. I couldn't find it um, to buy or at least at, at an affordable price. You know, I'm not, I'm not paying $600 for a, a book. So uh, they had it at the Schwarzman Library. So I, I went up there and spent a whole day sitting in the reading room uh, reading this guy's autobiography. It's just amazing stuff. Uh, he's talking about some of the other foreign pilots that flew for the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War. And, it, of course, it's 
real interesting collection of guys. But uh, one of them was a Paraguayan pilot who had flown uh, for Paraguay in the Chaco War like a couple years prior. So, again, there's, there's this intersection and overlap between the Chaco War and the Spanish Civil War by way of this Paraguayan pilot who flew in both conflicts. So it's like, oh, that, that would be an interesting cat to talk to. You know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. But, you know, that, I mean, that's, like, that's the stuff that uh, excites me, I guess, you know? Oh, yeah, very cool. So what made you finally decide to leave the military, and what made you decide to enroll in Columbia University's philosophy program? Oh, my ETS date was coming up. Again, I was at that point where maybe time to move on to the next, whatever the next thing's going to be. That year, I applied to a couple of schools because I was like, well, okay, if I get out, I want to have it set up so I can uh, go to school, use my GI Bill and my Army College Fund, and uh, start working on, on the academic uh, intellectual side a little bit since I, you know, post 9-11 had definitely indulged the, <laughs> the warrior aspect of it. Uh, so I, I applied to two, only two schools. I applied to Seattle University, which is a Jesuit school, a real good school, and uh, I applied to Columbia in New York, uh, totally not not expecting to uh, get accepted to Columbia. Almost almost did it as a joke or kind of set myself up for failure in a way where uh, if I didn't get accepted, then you know, it'd give me an excuse not to, not to go to school at all, basically, <laughs> you know. But uh, I, got, <laughs> I got accepted to both schools. The Columbia thing kind of threw me for a loop because it's like, uh, okay, wow. <laughs> you know, the gauntlet's been thrown down. It's like, what, you know, what are you going to do, PL? You know, are you, are, are you going to bow out or, or are you going to rise to uh, uh, this level of education or whatever? But I went for it, I went, you know. Like okay, like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to I'm going to go big. Asking you shall receive, apparently, huh? Yeah, found myself uh, about six months later uh, going to Columbia. So, have you finished your undergrad studies, or are you still working on that? No, I got about a semester left. Okay, and then are you going to go right into uh, postgrad studies? I don't. I'm, you know, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Um, I'm really interested in that military history uh, master's program. But I really feel like not doing anything uh, for a bit. Uh, take a breather, um, go back west, spend a little time in my house, uh, maybe spend some time in the mountains. Um, yeah, maybe take a little downtime and uh, reassess and reevaluate a bit. you want to do maybe long-term goal or visions or ideas that you have uh, you know i played with the idea of like uh, going back in the army for a couple years serve as a, as a like a ranger instructor at ranger school kind of um put, put in my instructor time and and give back to the community a bit you know i'd, I'd love to do uh, a music uh, another musical thing um but logistically uh, i'm not sure how that's going to work out. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to be in a situation where I had a couple people that I could play with and, and we did it just for fun, you know, just like uh, go in the rehearsal room and uh, write songs and uh, maybe not even play anywhere. But, you know, no no pressure, no aspirations of, like, recording or touring or, or anything like that. Just You know, just do it for the same reason 
I, I picked up a guitar when I was 15, you know, because it, it was fun to do, and it, it you know, you, you plug into the amp and turn it up and, and make noise, and it brings a smile to your face. When I went to the military, there was a period of maybe almost three or four years, I didn't, I didn't even pick up a guitar. I, I think I had that much of kind of a bad taste in my mouth about it. Yeah. And uh, finally uh, started playing again, maybe about 10 years ago or so. And uh, now I play uh, basically every day. And uh, it, it's been fun because I've actually, um, for the first time in a long time, actually grown as a musician. Like, um, I'm definitely, you know, I'll never be a great guitar player. Um, I think I'm okay, but I've definitely gotten better. I picked up a sitar in India, like about 13, 12, 13 years ago, that I had forever and was just kind of intimidated by it, just all, all the all the strings, all the sympathetic strings, and had no idea how to tune it, and I had no idea um, about Eastern music theory or anything like that. But I uh, just started learning to play that last year, and, and to the point where I can actually uh, play music on it, which is, which is again, you know, it brings me joy. It's a smile on my face. Ah, yeah, that's very cool. Um, I've gotten kind of into, like on, on eBay, I picked up a couple of, vintage Moog analog synthesizers. So uh, g- going back to, like, uh, Jimmy Plotkin, like, introducing me to electronic music, I've been kind of playing with those. I think I got a book in me. I've been participating, or la- I started participating last fall in this writer's workshop. Uh, it's a veteran's writing workshop through NYU that's, you know, I've been trying to basically learn how to write and by that I mean learning how to write in an, in an interesting way, or a way that's interesting to me. You know, written a couple short stories. But yeah, I think I think I got a book in me at some point. I think maybe the long term, what I'd like to do when uh, when I'm an old man is that I'd lo- I'd love to be a, a model builder for museums. Oh, like, that's like, cool. Like like be the guy who who, who builds the dioramas and, and and the models and stuff, and uh. I think that would be maybe a retirement plan or, a, you know, definitely something to do when I'm older. But, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be the, the diorama guy, you know, to, to just to sound super geeky. Oh, that's awesome. I love dioramas. When I was a kid growing up in junior high, uh, I used to play that game Dungeons & Dragons, and I used to paint up those little lead figures, and I made these cardboard dungeon dioramas out of them, and so that's a little bit of a geek that's moment awesome. from my past. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Jason, thank you for your time. It's been tremendous to have you on uh, Music Live Radio as a guest. Uh, I'm very excited about this. I think we've got to learn a lot about you. Uh, do you got any other last thoughts? I'm still thoroughly confounded by how just strange life is. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I have nothing to add to that. Okay, Jason, have a good evening. Thank All you very much. Hey, no problem, man. All right, take it easy. Okay, you too. Take care. Thanks again to Jason Everman for a fascinating interview. We'll have to check back in with him in about 10 years and see what else he's done. Anyway, thanks for checking out Music Life Radio. And we'll catch you next time. We're going to end this episode with another song from Mindfunk. This one entitled 11 Ton Butterfly. Again, this is off the album Dropped.